The sermon today is based on the epistle lesson, which comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. It is a glorious description of the strong and enduring love of God. You can find it on page 1,123 of the Pew Bible. And please stand again as you're able for the reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 28, we read in Jesus' name. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. This passage is filled with beautiful descriptions of God's love. We especially see that God's love is active, selfless, and powerful. God is for his chosen people. He is not idle. His love is not just a passive feeling of affection for us. God's love is active and powerful. He works for those he loves. And maybe you feel like you know all about God's love. Maybe you've heard it every Sunday and here and there throughout the week for your entire life. And you know what? If that's you, that's fantastic. But sometimes we might take it for granted. It might be comfortable, but not as exciting as it once was. But do not take it for granted. Don't think, yeah, I know this already. Instead, look at the specific descriptions of God's love in this passage. And all throughout the Bible, look at the specific ways that God's love is described. There are several quotable verses in this passage. You might recognize a few of them. The first one is verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, this is certainly one of the most popular verses in the entire Bible. Sometimes people will choose this as their life verse. You might have a coffee mug or a wall hanging with this verse on it. It's been used so much that it's kind of become a cliché. And you know what? That's not bad. Sometimes things become cliches because they are true and really, really good. 
It's a marvelous promise, especially when we fully understand it. For those who love God, all things work together for good. And all really does mean all, even tragedies and disappointments. They work together for good. But I have a caution for you. If you're going to use this as your life verse or even just one of your top 10 or one of your top 100 or whatever, you should know what it means. Pay attention to what comes before it and what comes after it. The Bible was never meant to be read just one verse at a time. Both before and after this verse, the Apostle Paul is talking about the new creation. He's not talking about everything being good in this life. He's talking about the life to come. In the verses before this, which we uh, talked about last week, Paul teaches that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. This world is not the way it's supposed to be, and we suffer in this life. But in the new creation, that is when God will make all things right. And in the verses following, he speaks of how God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. To be conformed to Jesus' image means that we will be like him. And when it says that Jesus will be the firstborn, that means that there will be other born, other children of God who will be raised from the dead just as Jesus was, and we will live eternally just as Jesus does now. So the all things in verse 28 especially refers to our sufferings. And the good God promises us is in the world to come, not in this world. There's actually a a great danger in believing this verse without knowing the context. For one thing, we might hear the phrase, all things work together for good. And we might think that God actually causes the bad things in life. It sounds kind of like when something bad happens and someone says, well, it was for the best, you know? No, that's not true. There are evil things in this world. We should be honest about that. There is sin and death. None of that is good. Maybe someone you love dies. Maybe you fail at something. Maybe someone does something terrible to you. The last thing anyone should ever tell you is, it's for the best. Using this verse in those circumstances can actually be dangerous. That is, if we use it wrongly. We don't have to say that our tragedies and sufferings are good. That is to call evil good, and we should never do that. If that's the case, you might as well just say that the devil is your best friend. But he's not, and evil is not good. That's fatalism. It's what the pagans believe. The pagans believe that the gods dictate everything, and therefore whatever happens must be for the best. That is false. I suppose the reason that we're tempted to think this way is that we really just don't want things to be bad. And so if we can convince ourselves that that bad things are actually good, then maybe we can explain away our suffering, and then we won't hurt so much. But that is not what the scriptures teach. There is evil, but God does not cause it. He is not the source of evil. Instead, here's how the scriptures describe it. The providence of God is seen in his ability to do good in the midst of evil. His providence is demonstrated when he brings about something good for us despite the wickedness in the world and even despite our own sin. 
The devil, the world, and our sinful flesh can go wild, but God will still make things right in the end. But if we go the route of fatalism and think that everything is determined by God, then when the evil just becomes too much for us to bear, we might finally conclude, I don't like this God anymore. If he took so-and-so from me, or if he made this terrible thing happen to me, then he can't actually be good. And you would be right if it were true that God causes evil. And so we should not take this verse to mean that everything that happens is for the best. It's not. It means that God takes the bad and he does something good in the midst of it. Bad things are still bad, but God's goodness is more powerful than any evil. The other danger, and I think this is the more common one, is that we expect to receive the good in this life. But that is not what God promises. Instead, the scriptures warn us that we will suffer in this life. Bad things happen. Evil things happen. And sometimes they just stay evil until the day we die. It is dangerous to our faith to believe that God is going to make things good in this life because he does not promise that, which means it might not happen. And then when it doesn't happen, we despair of God. We think that he must not be as good as he says he is, or maybe he doesn't actually love me, or maybe he's just not real. We despair when God doesn't satisfy the false expectations that we set for him. And the basic problem is that we are in love with this world and we pursue happiness in this world. I'm going to call this the heresy of happiness. It's not just that we want to be happy. Everyone wants to be happy and there's nothing wrong with being happy. I hope you have some happiness in your life. But the heresy is when we think that the goal of life is to be happy, or when we expect that the purpose of God is to give us happiness. But both of those ideas are wrong. It's not just that they are wrong, though, but they are deadly to faith. A heresy isn't just any false teaching, but we reserve the word heresy for those special false teachings that pose a fatal threat to saving faith. And the heresy of happiness is just that. If we think that the goal of life is to be happy, and if we think that happiness is God's will for our lives, but then we're not happy, we start to think there's something wrong. Maybe we think there's something wrong with us, or maybe we think there's something wrong with God, or maybe there's something wrong with the faith that we have confessed. Maybe we don't understand it, or maybe it's just not true. If it's supposed to make me happy, but then I'm not happy, then there must be something wrong. Now, Christians, we like to put on a happy face. I suppose everyone does. In the Christian subculture, that is in the various kinds of Christian media you might find, there are a lot of happy faces. That's how you market something, right? Nobody markets their actual products anymore. They market happiness. They make it look like buying their product will satisfy you. And so we, we buy products, and they might deliver for a short time, but the feeling fades, and we move on to the next thing. It's effective for selling products, but it's terrible for Christianity because Christianity does not deliver the kind of happiness that the world is selling. Now, there's nothing more satisfying than knowing that our sins are forgiven. But there's still suffering, and there is still longing for something more because we're not in the new creation yet. We don't believe Christianity because of the way it makes us feel. 
We believe it because it is objectively true and it delivers the greatest eternal promise to us. Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and he rose from the dead on the third day, not just in spirit and not just as a legend, but physically and historically with hundreds of eyewitnesses. This historical fact secures the promise that God is attached to it, that when Jesus returns on the last day, he will raise the dead and grant everlasting life to all who believe in him. That's why we believe it. It's true, and it promises eternal life. Then Paul gets to the beautiful conclusion. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question, but hey, go ahead and try to answer it. If God is for you, who can harm you? Who can condemn you? Can the devil come and drag you into hell? No. If he could, he would just come and kidnap you and take you there. But he is absolutely incapable of doing that because God prevents it. Can your neighbor harm you? Yes, yes, your neighbor can harm you. In this life, people can do great harm to us. God sets limits to it, but they can still do great harm. But no one can take anything from you that God will not give back in the resurrection of the dead a hundred times more. If God is for you, and he is, then no one can do any permanent harm to you. And Paul reminds us where God has shown this love to us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Again, a rhetorical question, but try to answer it. That's the point. God gave his son for you. Jesus paid the ultimate price to forgive your sins. After paying that price, do you think God is going to say, well... I could raise you from the dead, bring you into the new creation. It won't cost me anything more, but nah. God paid the price, and now he wants to get what he paid for. And the thing that he paid for is your eternal salvation. I mean, think about this. Suppose you spend your entire life saving up to get one precious thing, like a, a rare baseball card or a beautiful gem. Maybe you're not into those things, but just pretend for a moment that you are. You spend everything that you have to get it. Then you order it, and it comes in the mail. What do you do? Do you leave it in the package? Does it just sit there under a pile of junk mail? <laughs> of course not. You open it, and you put it in the most special place in your house. If God has given his own son for you, having paid that price, do you think he's just going to leave you in the dirt? No way. He's going to raise that body. He's going to transform you. He's going to place you in glory in his new creation. That's what he paid for. There's no way he doesn't give it to you. Or it's like a parent who buys presents for their kids. Do you go and buy presents for your kids and then just not give them to them? <laughs> of course not. Especially when you find something really, really great for them. You can't wait to give them their present. Your father in heaven loves you way more than any parent on earth loves their children. And he has already paid the price to give you every good thing. Do you think he's going to withhold it? No way. 
And if Jesus has already borne all the condemnation for our sin, can anyone accuse us anymore? Will God stand for that? Will he allow the devil or anyone else to hold your sins over your head? Not a chance. Jesus is the judge, and he's the one who paid for your sin. So what can separate you from the love of God? We might experience some evil things that frighten us. When we suffer, we might feel like God is distant from us. But remember what he has done for you. He will not so easily surrender his claim on you. And so we experience hardships and sufferings in this life. But remember what the Apostle Paul says about those things. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We are more than conquerors, not by our own power, but through him who loved us. He goes on, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.